I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. I am so excited to share that my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, comes out this spring. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive approach to yoga. It is available for purchase on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Hi, friends, and welcome back. I hope you're caught up and enjoying these episodes. There is a lot going on. You know, if you haven't heard, there's a book coming out, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga. It's on uh, pre-order now with three major bonuses. Um, The one I really want to highlight are two additional sequences that did not make the book. They actually are essential to the book. So I want you to pre-order the book so you get those additional restorative and awakening yoga sequences. There's also a trauma-sensitive body scan and an author Q&A, meet and greet online with me about a book a week after the book drops. So make sure you pre-order off my site. Also on my site, I am going to be touring. I'm going to be leading a bunch of workshops related to trauma-sensitive yoga and training yoga teachers in trauma sensitivity training health professionals, teachers, whoever you are, if you're a regular yoga instructor or a longtime practicer of yoga or other modalities, this is for you. Even the book as well is for everyone. If you are practicing yoga or a teacher, if you're not even practicing yoga, but you're a little bit stressed and you want some exercises, we have a lot of poses in the chair. We have a lot of somatic exercises in there. If you just want to understand how stress shows up in our life, uh, traumatic stress, childhood traumas. It doesn't have to be big T trauma. We are all dealing with the aftermaths of COVID, which I talk about in the book. So get it. (laughs) And also I am booking a bunch of retreats and trainings. The booking is starting now. So go to my site, laraland.us trying to think what's coming up that's up there. There's a retreat in March for coming out of the winter that is already starting to fill. There is a training workshop trauma weekend at Kripalu. That was on my vision board. Man, that is so cool. Going to be at Kripalu in Massachusetts. That's the end of June, June 30th to July 2nd. And also on the vision board, Miami Life Center. Yes, going to visit my friends Kino and Tim in Miami to teach a trauma-sensitive yoga teacher training with a little more focus on the Ashtanga tradition and the bits about Ashtanga that are good or not good for trauma. I also talk about that on a recent podcast with Adam Keen that is probably already out as I'm speaking this. So please take a look at my site. If you haven't, please review this podcast. We want this work to get out there. So, you know, when you review it and rate it and share it, more people can be helped. What I'm trying to do here is really amplify voices. And the voice I'm bringing to you today is one that deserves amplification. This interview is very special, very major, because I get to speak to, you know, a real life activist. I don't know. Do we feel like we're activists when we're posting on social media? I mean, we're doing something, but I'm really trying to get down there on the ground and make a difference with my body, with my actions. And she's doing it. She's my hero. I want to be like this, someone who is risking it to make a better world for everyone. And she's centered, embodied, present, gracious, and open. And sometimes we can lose that in our social activism. So to find someone 
who believes that we can get to a better world, wow, and is making it happen. She is amazing. Then Mori Sandurarajan is a Dalit civil rights artist and organizer, a theorist who has worked with hundreds of organizations to better understand the urgent issues of race, caste, and gender equality. Working across disciplines, she is an innovative strategist and thinker who has built bridges between many communities around the world. Through her work at Equity Labs, then Mori has mobilized South Asian American community to confront their historical trauma and to break the silence about caste, to commit to ending caste apartheid, gender-based violence, white supremacy, and religious intolerance. She co-founded Third World Majority, an international media training organization and collective that supported people from disenfranchisement. Her intersectional, cross-pollinating work, research, education, art, activism, and digital security helps to create a more generous, global, expansive, and inclusive definition of South Asian identity, along with safe spaces from which to honor the stories of these communities. Her new book is out. It's called The Trauma of Caste, and we are going to talk about it in this interview. We will discuss her religious and historical trauma. She is a survivor, and she's going to talk about what it feels like to survive those traumas, which aren't often spoken about, the legacy of caste, and how it is still very much with us, not just in South Asia, but here in the U.S. And we're going to talk about the yoga community and the ways that some things we might be doing in the yoga room might be causing harm and perpetuating some of that trauma. So I want you to be ready for that. And my yoga teachers and practitioners out there, I really want you to listen to this because it was very awakening for me. We're going to talk about the Sanskrit language, Brahma, Brahmanism, and maybe some mistakes that some of us are making. So Our goal here is to do less harm, and we can do that by switching up some of the things in the yoga room, and we're going to get some tips to how we can make amends at the end of this interview. Okay. I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome, Tenmori Saundarajan. Did I get it right? It's almost. You got it. It's Tenmori Saundarajan. Tenmori Saundarajan. You got it. Welcome, Tenmori. I'm really, really glad you're here. As I mentioned to you, just as we were just talking, your book had a profound effect on me. I'm really, really glad that it fell into my hands. And there's a lot that I want to talk to you about and ask you about in regards to this book and your just your body of work and the person that you are, which is, you know, coming across to me through your words and your music and your art, which I got to peruse on your site. I'm like, that's the kind of person I want to be. <laughs> I have to say that you're just so inspiring. The way you brought in so many people in your book, lineage and so many connections, it's just really, it's, it's something remarkable. So I'm just very glad to be in touch with this work. And I know there's a lot of just really deep, very, very important information for especially yoga practitioners and teachers like myself to hear in this book. I want to get to that. I know a lot of that you shared. I listened to you on a recent podcast. I think it was uh, Matthew Remsky's. So I think that won't be the bulk, but that is very, very important. And I want to get that out to our yoga community. But I wanted to start with more about you and understanding your story. And because you know, your book is called The Trauma of Caste. And so it has trauma right there in the title. And I thought, why not break this title down? Maybe you can explain to me and to our audience, what is caste and what is the trauma of caste? Because I think a lot of people might not be familiar. Thank you again for having me on this podcast. It's such a beautiful space to really explore healing in so many different dimensions. And I really invite all of the listeners to kind of listen with all the different modalities they have for themselves, you know, whether it's in their body or their mind or their spirits, there's a lot that we'll be going through. And I appreciate, Lara, your open heart to creating this space for us both. So thank you. So I think when we talk about the trauma of caste, um, you know, I'm doing a couple of things. The first is that I'm introducing people to a system of exclusion 
that is very old and as large as the system of race. And it has its origins in 2000 BC in South Asia, in scripture. And, you know, it's based on a social fiction that basically said some people at the top are more pure and deserve and have better jobs than other people at the bottom. And, you know, like race, this social fiction is based on nothing biological, but it has harmed and created oppressive conditions for millennia. And within this caste system, you have caste or these social classes where you have Brahmins who are at the top, who are the priests that wrote these scriptures. And then you have corresponding castes underneath them. So you have the ruling caste, which were the Kshatriyas. You have the merchant caste, who were the Vaishyas. The Shudra caste, who were the peasants. And then outside of this caste pyramid are the castes that were oppressed and were said to be spiritually defiling to other people because they did terrible things in a past life. And therefore, they're born untouchable, spiritually defiling before God, and therefore preserving of the conditions of exploitation and disgusting, backbreaking labor that their castes demand. So, if, for example, my caste, the Bunyan caste, you know, traditionally processed um, dead bodies or played instruments made from the carcasses of cows. And so it's just, it's very interesting because I think that, you know, again, nobody gets to define someone's position towards God. And so people who are born into untouchable castes often will say, we're not untouchable and create new names for ourselves as part of our pursuit of dignity and to escape this caste system. So I identify as someone who's Dalit or caste oppressed. And there are many other people who identify as new religions that they convert to, to escape the caste system. And significantly, in addition to Dalits and caste-oppressed people, there are also indigenous people who are also oppressed by caste that are called Advasi, or indigenous people. So within all of this realm of this system of exclusion, you know, it has internalized, interpersonal, and structural domains where caste is like one of the leading axes of exclusion in South Asia, impacting over 1.9 billion people, where caste-oppressed and Dalit and indigenous people have some of the lowest development indicators of any community in the region, with high rates of literacy, high rates of police violence and carcerization, and lack of education, access to professional jobs and the like. So it is definitively a messed up system, very similar to race. And when South Asians come to the United States, they also bring caste here. And so we see high rates of you know, discrimination in Dalit American communities where one out of four people face physical and verbal assault, one out of three discrimination in education, and two out of three discrimination in the workplace. And this is the data part. We can talk about that all day. But what I wanted to do differently in this book was to talk about the trauma that comes with the system of exclusion. And this has never really been done before in such a significant way because there is so much impunity and gaslighting that occurs when caste oppressed people talk about this system. And so to actually say that there is trauma that comes from any system of exclusion has been a very powerful contribution by indigenous and black and other racial scholars of trauma. And so I was really able to use those methodologies to talk about actually when you have this much violence, this much death, this much caste harm, it's logical that there would also be trauma. And so to write about this in the many different domains that I talk about in this book, but to also provide a path towards healing was one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because I didn't want to just sit in the cast pain. I wanted to find a pathway for my people and the world to really heal from caste. And to center healing in any project of exclusion demands the body to be involved and for us to integrate the learnings of the body as our pathway towards freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And I really appreciate that you 
you talk about embodied. Actually, you I think this is a quote from your book. Dominators systems are embodied, um, if I got that right. And and so I wonder how the trauma of caste has shown up in your body and what were your experiences with that early on? Well, one of the things that I talk about in my book is this idea of a caste soul wound. And for listeners that have never heard that term soul wound, it really comes from indigenous and black practitioners who are in the fields of trauma who have observed that when working with indigenous patients or black and brown patients, that people were coming into their practices, not just with suicidal ideation and depression, but with a pain that went beyond their own individual circumstances. And so Eduardo Durand used this term soul wound to talk about what actually happens in a people that have survived genocide. There is a way that the pain of that apocalyptic experience has actually embedded itself in the nervous systems and the biochemistry of people who are the survivors. And so to heal isn't just about healing from your own immediate situation, but actually to heal the lineage by the recognition of what past harm has occurred. And, you know, Resma Menachem, another beautiful Black somatic abolitionist and therapist, used that concept of the soul wound to also talk about it in the context of white supremacy. And that you know, he even talks about white supremacy as white body supremacy, and that there's a way that racially privileged people and racially oppressed people are connected to the racial soul wound And that's what actually needs to be healed. And so for me, as someone who experiences a similarly violent system of exclusion that had cast and cast apartheid, it was important to me to to recognize first, how did I carry the caste soul wound in myself? And also what was my observations of caste privileged people and their experience of the caste soul wound? And for me, I think it showed up in many different ways. I... I first, as a child, observed it in my parents. They didn't have to say the word caste to convey to me that they were struggling with what they had survived having left India. They had nightmares. They were also deeply in fear of being outed as being Dalit and hid much of their identity, even here in the United States. I also think that they had observed and experienced different aspects of caste violence and bigotry that made it very difficult for them to speak about their background. And there are so many ways that trauma is communicated to a child. It's not about words. It's about the behavior and the way that you train a nervous system, you know, at home. And so I think from that, I knew something was wrong. And I knew that something was there, you know, the jagged edge to all of our pictures. And so I started to ask a lot of questions. And as I, you know, started to ask questions that led to what cast we were, I remember my mom, you know, telling me, and it was like, it was like the Dulit version of the talk. And it was so painful. When I read about untouchability, you know, one of the core concepts of untouchability is that you are in this despicable cast because you have done something wrong in another life. And so I had thought about this and I was like, was I a rapist? Was I a thief? Was I a murderer? (laughs) It was very traumatic. As I kind of wrestled with those spiritual questions, I started to talk about it with other people. And that's when I started to out myself as being Dalit. And that's when I started to experience caste discrimination, you know, first from the parents of children I went to school with and later on with classmates in college and other people within the South Asian community and even within the yoga community. It was difficult, you know? I don't think people, I mean, I think, some people, you know, might have heard of caste and they think it's in South Asia, in India. And, and mo- many of us have heard that caste has, has been abolished, you know, caste systems. And then to hear that it still exists and that it's brought over here is quite a shock for many of us. I know it, it was for me. I never understood that. No, I mean, I've had plates switched on me because people didn't want me to eat on their plates and defile their their cooking wear. I've had rape threats and death threats. I've had people openly use cast slurs. I mean, it's, and these are just interpersonal issues, but also they're structural. Like in the state of California, when I went to college, there was a landlord that had trafficked 300 workers 
to work his buildings, 20 of whom were young Dalit girls who were his sex slaves. You know, so there's also deep structural exploitation that comes from caste because of how normalized it is for dominant caste people to exploit our bodies and our labor. And they just traffic them here. You know, even today, there's like temples under the BAPS religious sect that trafficked hundreds of workers to work a dollar an hour to build their religious temples around the country. So it's a it's a workers' rights issue. It's a women's rights issue. And it's a human rights issue. But again, for me, and, you know, because your question was, how did I feel it in my body? I think I disassociated from my body. I didn't, and I didn't, I had such a hard time believing um, my own experience was true because everyone around me who was South Asian and dominant caste did not. And in fact, they went even further to gaslight me around this issue. And so I think I became very, very like focused on being um, able to fight them intellectually, but divorced myself from my body because my feelings of what it meant to be out were too tremendous for my body, you know, because I felt fear, I felt anxiety, I felt grief, I felt pain. And I couldn't be the intellectual fighter that I needed to be if I was cowering with my body because my body was scared. You know, when you get so many threats and so many things to undermine you, it hurts. It just hurts so much, you know? And for a long time, I just lived as a bifurcated person, you know, where it's like my body's in one place, my mind's in another, and I'm totally happy with that. (laughs) And in fact, I don't know if you've ever had this with other people that are in your yoga training programs, but I would feel so confident that I understood yoga because I read all the yoga books. I read everything related to yoga. And I was like, oh yeah, that's that asana. That's that asana. I totally understand it. And my body actually could not do those positions, you know, but I was like, in my mind, I understand this. I've already got this. I can pass yoga teacher training class because I had so effectively divorced my body and my mind. Now you were living up in your head. Yes. Yes. But that disassociation is very common. I think for people who are struggling um, with cast pain, because we are not allowed to be human you know, it's it's actually inhuman levels of caste stress that we have to manage from the gaslighting to the consistent climate of atrocity and to the fear of being outed. You know, so we, we develop a kind of lopsided resilience where we can intellectually push through things, but our bodies are not being tended to. And, and I think what I observed in the caste privilege is, you know, tremendous fragility and capacities for violence when they are exposed to just a small amount of caste stress. And that's because their nervous systems have been trained for complicity and to be to normalize dehumanization. And that is also a tremendous insight that I saw and observed because I would watch people be incredibly chaotic when simple propositions of civil rights would be shared. So, you know, for example, we recently just tried to work with the one of the local counties in California to add caste as a protected category so that we could start to have legal protections for these issues. And one of the things that I saw that was absurd was I would see privileged people go up and say things like, are you ready for this county to be ground zero for genocide against Hindus? Are you ready? to have the blood of Hindus on your hands? Do you want us to wear cast on our armbands? Like, how dare you do this, you know? And again, what was being discussed was adding caste as a protected category, nothing else. But that level of anxiety and fear-mongering, it has its roots in a nervous system that is so threatened by equity that it views any such discussion as a, th- a survival-level threat which then, you know, brings about this kind of outsized response to a policy conversation. But but that's actually why the word trauma is really apt for this conversation. And I think in yoga spaces, people have talked, you know, I think have a lot of insight in terms of what it means to use trauma to create mindfulness around, I'm sorry, use yoga as my, you know, and its mindfulness practices to help people deal with trauma responses that might arise from the practice. But trauma is often only seen through the lens of an individual's experience of trauma, not trauma as a a front that comes from systems of exclusion. But I really think this is the terrain that we also need to be working in because there's so much there 
within yoga practice that can really help de-escalate nervous systems that are that are wired for bigotry. Yeah. Yeah, you said it there. I mean, if you if you're just looking at the individual, you're really missing a lot of the picture and some of these folks who think they're doing doing good by, you know, maybe helping an individual to feel better in their body. Yes, but if you're not also looking at the the system that is causing them to feel that way, then it's going to be repeated and you're also not really doing the full work. No, absolutely. And there is, I think, an important piece to know about how yoga spaces can sometimes inadvertently also cause trauma. For me, I came to yoga because I was looking for mindfulness practices because of the amount of racism and casteism that I was facing as a college student. And I found peace on the mat, like many people, right? But I also think what was so hard was I had to basically grit my teeth and endure practices that were also traumatizing to me. And I think that's part of why I wanted to open this conversation is that, you know, there is such a learning moment within global yoga communities about ways that we can minimize the harm that we create in the communities that we hold space in. And the more that we center marginalized communities that have been harmed in the land bases that we work from, in the tradition and lineages that we originate our teachings, the more that we're able to integrate the family of humanity that is going to be our yoga circle of practice. Yeah. I mean, do you want to Talk a little bit more about what you saw and have seen in the yoga space and why this is particularly traumatic to uh, folks who identify as Dalit or caste oppressed, because um, this is big awakening for me. And I know it's really, really important information for yoga communities out there. Well, I think that, you know, again, for anyone that is listening, talking about these things doesn't remove the good that you may have received from any one tradition. It is just an acknowledgement that all systems of religion and religious practice and mind-body practices that come out of those systems are have their origins in humans, and humans have limits of the ego. And so, To talk about it is to simply acknowledge that harm has occurred and that we want to minimize that harm going forward. And institutions change over time, right? And so I want to kind of give that precursor because sometimes people, you know, when they start to hear that there could be harm in their yoga practice or lineage, their hackles rise up because, again, they go right to that survival instinct where it's like, don't take away what's been my teddy bear, (laughs) what's helped me. (laughs) I can't, you know, and they shut down, right? And go dorsal. But I think that for me as someone who's cast depressed, yoga was always a bittersweet process because while I definitely received benefits from the somatic integration that the practices offered, many teachers, both Indian and also those of American descent would really lean into enforcing practices that were actually very exclusive. Saying, you know, and this included things like forcing all students to chant Sanskrit mantras before a class, emphasizing that there's only, you know, I had this one class that said that not only was Sanskrit one of the only holy languages in the world, but also that Hinduism was like the only religion in the world that could provide transformation. Like people just lean into these like very exotified, sometimes Orientalist statements about, you know, one religious tradition when actually the class was meant to be secular. And, um, and I think that what people don't realize is that languages like Sanskrit were actually barred from cast oppressed people like myself. In fact, in certain scriptures, um, if we were, you know, they, they basically had this prohibition that cast oppressed people that, that actually said Sanskrit words or words that came from these texts would have their tongues cut off or lead poured in their ear because they weren't even allowed to listen to these texts. So that's why I just found it really ironic that I was being forced in a yoga class to chant Sanskrit when my ancestors were not allowed to do so. 
And I remember just kind of sitting outside a class after a teacher had chastised me about it and thinking about how can I do this? How can I achieve liberation with the text and with a mantra that I know would have harmed my ancestors? It felt like I was betraying them by doing that. And many yoga teachers, you know, especially if you're not South Asian, they feel like they want to acknowledge, obviously, the roots of yoga in the subcontinent. But in doing so, they actually orientalize or sometimes even push very fundamentalist versions of the religions and the practices there. And that also is very harmful because, again, there's actually a lineage of harm that has also accompanied those traditions. So it's almost like people need to have critical thinking skills when they're saying certain things about consent, when they're saying things about how the body is divided up in, you know, yoga practice, and even the terms of like purity and pollution, these are all concepts that are rooted in caste. And that's not to say that we're not going to have benefit from training our bodies and focusing on integration. We just have to understand that sometimes the filter that has shaped our training around this is a flawed one that was rooted in pain. And I think even simple things that yoga teachers can do would be to acknowledge, just like you do a land acknowledgement about being on unceded lands to the indigenous community that you're based in, or having a little altar, you can just mention, you know, we appreciate the learnings and teachings of the yoga sutras and the yoga teachers that have informed this practice. And we also acknowledge that there has also been accompanying pain to millions of caste oppressed people in these traditions. And so we honor their struggles as we do um, observe and continue with these teachings. Just something even simple as that could be very profound. Yeah, I'm just taking it all in. I mean, I'm thinking so many, so many questions. I'm thinking about, you said early on, it was in the scriptures. I, this really stood out for me early on in our conversation. You said it was in the caste system was written into the scriptures. And, you know, I know you talk a lot about the relationship of the caste experience and the race experience. And this is where it's even like, to me, almost separates, you know, because there's just like, I've never heard anything so it's just horrific to really hear about that it's in the scriptures. And when we're talking about what are these scriptures, these are the Brahmin scriptures that are then filtering into our, our yoga classes and, and training. And, and like you said, I mean, I was taught to really use the Sanskrit language and perfection of the sounds could mean lead to perfection of the asana and lead to some kind of spiritual awakening and to just understand where these concepts are rooted in is deeply disturbing. And it's also, I mean, this is where I think everyone has a personal journey and critical thinking can play a really big role because it is, you know, as someone who was, you know, born a Hindu, <laughs> we went to Hindu temple and I read all the scriptures in that context. I included like some samples of some of the scriptures where you see caste enforced and my bodily reactions to them. And I did that because, you know, again, as someone who was primarily disembodied related to caste stress, it was important to slow down enough to say, here are these scriptures. This is the pain that it elicited in me and where in my body I felt it because we're never afforded that dignity and space to acknowledge the horror of that. And for anyone that's listening, I recommend you pick up the book and you can read it for yourself. I don't want to go too much into it here, but you're you're right, Laura, in that, again, there is this weird fetishization of Sanskrit in uh, a lot of yoga spaces where people will say just the uttering of one syllable of Sanskrit is enough to open up, you know, portals in your body and all of this. And I think that Sanskrit over any other language, you know, any language has the capacity to heal, any language has the capacity to wound. It's not about the language itself. It's actually about the energetic intention behind your words and your space. And even when you think about like what you were talking about with the, the syllables or saying certain syllables during a yoga practice, right? If you break it down even further in terms of like what's happening in the body, there's energetic intention, of course, right? But if you think about certain consonants and vowels when you pronounce them, you're actually activating your vagus nerve, right? So if you actually 
say something that active, you know, use a syllable like mm, or ooh, you're activating the vagus nerve across your nervous system that will, in fact, relax and integrate and activate your nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system to be in alignment with each other. Does that mean that this is a magical language that only one language could like provide that portal to? Absolutely not, you know? And, and saying this again is not to take away the benefit people may have had in doing those practices. It's actually more to bring people to a more grounded space when viewing South Asian religious traditions, because again, these are human traditions taught with people that have clay feet. And again, because caste is now found in all communities of religious practice, you know, it had its origin in Hindu scriptures, but it's now found everywhere. And it's hard because I think a lot of Americans view India through that lens of eat, pray, and love, you know, where it's like, this is the place to get enlightenment. And they follow gurus and babas there without any question, you know, especially when it comes to yoga teacher training, like people surrender to their master and some of the things that they say in very disturbing ways that open the pathway for abuse. But just as you have that tradition, you also have many South Asians who grew up in India that also look at these same traditions and are like, oh my gosh, those babas, everybody knows there's actually so much abuse that goes on there. Just be careful. (laughs) You know, when I see Americans like surrender in such a way that they put, leave their critical thinking at the door of their practice, that's really to me a sign of something that's unhealthy because freedom really, you know, require all of you and you should never have to like put away your doubt in order to be able to integrate. You should be able to have critical thinking and discussion with your teachers and your communities of practice so that you can be there as a full person, not someone who is surrendering and leaving their intellect at the door. And this is the core of trauma-sensitive yoga is reminding the student, the practitioner of their agency. And that's where we're really flipping it around it's like when I'm training yoga teachers, I'm, I'm telling them, you're going to have to unlearn a bunch of stuff that you learned in your yoga teacher training, where you're telling people what to do and, and giving explanations for things that were given to you from someone who was given, you know, from someone else who didn't know and were passed down without, like you said, critical thinking. And instead invite the practitioner to, you know, explore what feels right for them and how spirituality shows up in their body and how integration shows up in their body. And, and and that's, yeah, that's the core of what we're doing. We make modifications all the time in yoga poses, right? So, you know, like we know that some poses, for example, aren't really easily done with someone with bigger breasts, right? Like if you think about like eagle pose or think about people that do chair yoga because they can't do certain standing poses. You know, it's so interesting how we're able to be nimble around the understandings of our body, but we're not willing to be similarly non-attached to our understandings of the structural foundations of our lineages. And I think that's where we need to be as open as we can. I was thinking about how one of the things I, I heard you say was about like this kind of the story of the cast and the story of the untouchables being a story of that you didn't have, you know, a right to the infinite and to touching into that spirituality and, and then finding your pathway to that, which I want you to to share more about what your practices are now, which I also found super interesting. And yeah. And it was just, I was thinking of the connection of that and sort of this this very American and white desire to like find something, right? And this and also this balance between it's like if we try to say like I'm gonna connect to the infinite, it's so hard to find that way in or like where what that is. And so that's also why I think people get attached to a a kind of a like a structure, you know, a if I say these words and do these shapes with my body or, you know, I was even thinking of like in Catholic cultures, just like kneeling and making the cross and these different kind of rituals that somehow help us get in and access something that feels like connecting to the infinite. And, you know, 
all of them, right? Because then somehow packaged and commodified and and going through the hands of humans um, have, you know, historically ended up harming. I, I just wonder if that any of that resonates for you. Definitely. I mean, you know, I have to say a lot of times when, when you write a book, people think that you're an expert um, right from the bat, you know, and I think that the thing that I was the least expert in when I was writing this book was in my own pain and also how vast my cast pain was. And that's probably why I wrote this book, because one of the things that I really was able to finally articulate in a very clear way after finishing this book was that I am a survivor, you know, I am a survivor of gender-based violence and of police violence. But to your point, I'm also a survivor of religious abuse. And to say that is actually a tremendous thing for Dalit people because we are never allowed to name the existential wound that comes from a system of exclusion that says that we are spiritually not worthy in front of the divine. And who on earth has the right to take the divine away from anybody. But as a child and as an adult, this wound really forced me to be a seeker. And there were so many places I tried to create spiritual homes for me, but this wound kept coming up because the lack of people's awareness in the systems of uh, spiritual community people were creating uh, meant that they were inadvertently repeating castus dynamics without even realizing it. So to claim being a survivor of religious abuse was my way of being able to clear the path for me to assert my own divinity and my right to existential exploration, which seems so basic, you know, because it is a basic human desire. You know, I think the cavemen were, you know, (laughs) after they'd finished what they needed to do during the day, they looked out in the stars and they wondered, who am I? And where do I belong? You know, and what is this connection to mystery that surrounds me that's bigger than me? And it's been such a tremendous process for me to claim divinity and somatic practices for my own because Dalit women are the least allowed to be embodied under the caste system and let alone be people who can articulate paths of spiritual inquiry. So I, I do think that, um, This is why it was important for me to get into this conversation and invite people to understand more about the caste-depressed experience and also talk a little bit about what does it mean to be a survivor of religious abuse. It just, it feels terrible because you, the options in front of you are so terrible. You know, it's either you truncate your connection to mystery and the divine and say, I'm going to be this practical material person without any of this other connection, or you submit yourself to institutions that harm you every day and you are othered and less than even as you try to pursue this very polluted channel of divinity. And I I want a third way, which is one where we can all heal and see each other in our fullest ways by being honest with each other and slowing down enough so we can hear what it means that other people have experienced across different divides, whether they're racial or caste or gender, and come back to each other and reconnect across the family of humanity. And that's a slower process, um, but it's so rewarding because what you lose in privilege, you gain in connection. That's beautiful. And I wonder if you would share a little bit more about your personal journey and practices that have connected you to the divine and have helped heal some of the the impacts of the trauma that you suffered? Well, you know, in, in my book, I actually talk about the different lineages that have helped me come to myself and come back to my people. And none of those practices I share are meant to be prescriptive. They're just my path. Lowercase M, <laughs> lowercase B, because I think so much about past is about the removal of consent. And so moving slowly enough to allow for informed consent. So people are making choices that come from their own perspective and learning is is really a way that you stop the pain of caste. So 
for me, I think, you know, I, I basically was a seeker and went to all these different religious communities and practices, read very deeply. And there are actually Dalits in every community of practice. So you'll find that as you kind of incorporate caste equity into your policies and to conversations around equity across the board, more and more Dalit people will probably come out as a result of it because they know that it's a safe space. And that's certainly what happened for me as I transformed the institutions that I was out in and talked about and became in relationship with people. But for me, the tradition that I landed on that brought me great healing was Buddhist practice. And part of it was, I'm like a Buddhist, you know, the way that like Alice Walker is a Buddhist or the way that Tina Turner is a Buddhist. Like I always remember that scene and what's love got to do with it, where Tina has just come from a very deeply violent episode with her husband. She's left him and she's at a friend's house and her friend introduces her to the Nishrin Buddhist chant, Nam Myoho Renge Kyo. And that scene like rung a bell in my spirit because it was like, there are times when you can remove yourself from the practice of violence and there's times when you cannot. But regardless of what happens, you can attenuate the signal of violence. And here are tools that you can use, whether it's the Nam Myoho Renge Kyo chant, whether it's certain yoga asanas, the ability to, and the awareness that we can attenuate the signals of violence are probably the biggest gifts that I got from Buddhist practice and the larger somatic mindfulness field. And um, so as I began my inquiry, those kind of like moments really kind of stood out for me. And then of course, like as a somatic practitioner, you know, the works of Peter Levine and Stacey Hines were so important for me to be able to even pull the camera back even further and understand when we have these unresolved trauma responses in our bodies, how does it shape the kind of leaders we become? How does it shape the way that our relationships become warped by our inability to have self-reflection about what's happening in our nervous systems? And so Buddhist practice really helped me lurk, look at and unlearn some of those things. And it's a learning journey, of course. Like I'm always, always still interrogating that work. But that ability to go from the internal, which is what I think I got from Peter and Stacy's work, and then the work of Buddhist practitioners like Rhonda McGee and Ruth King helped me really open up to, hey, this is how you see it in terms of the structural. This is how we start to see it in the nervous systems of across the divides of the, the racially privileged and the racially oppressed. And and that opened up a whole body of work and practice for me that led to us running Unlearning Caste Supremacy workshops and fundamentally is the foundation for this book. So for me, Buddhism was a, both a personal journey as a survivor of abuse. It also began in also reclaiming and sharing with Americans the rich history of socially engaged Buddhism that comes from caste oppressed people. And then, in fact, Buddhism began as a socially engaged movement against casteism and Brahmanism, the animating ideology behind caste. So to be a Buddhist was to be part of this long lineage of freedom warriors for my people, including Dr. Mbedkar, who was like our Martin Luther King and Malcolm X wrapped into one. So I just, I found myself in Buddhist practice because of the history because of the tools it gave me to attenuate the signal of violence and also to be able to have a really beautiful practice to help people de-escalate from structural violence and systems of exclusion. And so I'm a Buddhist practitioner who brings that to that table. And it's been a, such a healing thing because we're working with other people who want to unlearn their caste supremacy and who are conscious about their nervous systems in a way that is centered around healing. And I never thought that we would get to this place. You know, when I think about where I started from, which was discrimination and bigotry and rape threats and death threats, to see people leaning into healing is tremendous. And that's transformation that is also deeply divine. And you're talking about through your, is it a nonprofit or a group? Yes. I'm sorry. So for people that don't know my background, um, you know, beyond me being the author of The Trauma of Caste, I'm executive director of an organization 
called Equality Labs, which is a Dalit or caste suppressed civil rights organization. And we do education, advocacy, and culture and power building to end caste apartheid and gender-based violence and white supremacy. And one of our trainings that we developed was a training called the Unlearning Caste Supremacy Workshop, which uses mindfulness practice and somatic awareness, as well as deep historical training to help people unlearn their caste supremacy. And we've done this now for, I think, almost like four to five years. And we've had thousands of people take this workshop, and it's been tremendous in the way that it's transformed the South Asian American community around its discrimination and bigoted practices of caste. Wow. That's incredible. You must be so, so proud of that work. You know, I I am, but I'm also, you know, it's a whole network of teachers that hold that space together that have really committed to this, this service to our people. Because what I found is, is that people couldn't really begin to commit to caste abolition when their nervous systems were not in right alignment with themselves and with each other. And so it's it's not like the intellectual knowledge is new. What's new is actually training people to work slow enough to be aware of their, their caste stress and their trauma responses so that they can dismantle their own inner experiences of caste stress through mindfulness techniques, right? And Again, this is models that come out of Black Buddhist and Black mindfulness and somatic abolitionists um, like Resma Menachem and Ruth King and Rhonda McGee. But to bring it to the South Asian community is tremendous. And especially for to be led by Dalit women is also transformative because, again, Dalit women are not never seen as both spiritual and political authorities within the South Asian context. So to be able to do this and integrate a mind-body practice within it it's revolutionary in terms of its engagement. And so I'm really, really honored. And again, this isn't just my work. This is the work of many, many, many individual teachers and workshop participants. And the numbers of our trainees keep growing. Yeah, I I love the practices that you're bringing into this. I mean, all the names that you've mentioned, Stacey Haynes, uh, Resma Medica, and uh, I mean, on and on, they're all people that I follow very closely. I think the listeners here follow closely or they will because we're always mentioning them. But, you know, one of the big through lines is slowing down, like you said, because just our bodies will react in the place of privilege that they've been conditioned to. But we can recondition ourselves and it's a practice and it starts by slowing down. And I I feel like that's a message that we can't hear enough. Does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. Because I think that the flow of capitalism and white supremacy and Brahminism, it makes you go from crisis to crisis. We are actually operating mindlessly, being firefighters from one crisis to the next. But when we do that, we actually are not empowering ourselves to be architects of the future. We are simply crisis managers and firefighters. And that's not a long-term sustaining place in order to build a healing practice. And um, so I think it's a very powerful thing for us to be able to move differently and, um, and begin to slow down in community with each other and begin to, you know, practice these mindfulness techniques to understand what systems of exclusion are doing to our nervous systems, what are our survival responses in, you know, with respect to racial and caste and gender stress, and how can we attenuate its signal with compassion and different somatic techniques so we can not let caste or racial or gender stress drive us mindlessly, but let it inform instead new pathways to relationality and community. Mm, Yeah. And that self-compassion piece is really important as we start to look at this. And, you know, especially I think it's, it's important or it's also important, you know, for white bodied people to look at how we're showing up in our bodies and not just fixing intellectually kind of the harm that the harms that we might be doing, but looking how it's it's showing up in our bodies. 
in, in our reactions um, or, you know, in, in the kind of space that we feel entitled to. So this is a deep and important topic. And I think it's just really present for me how, um, yeah, a lot of the, the, the work and discussions that we've been having here on the podcast relates to the work that, that you're doing dismantling cast. It's, it's really one in the same. It is. And I think it's also a moment of our zeitgeist. We as a species are up against some very challenging dynamics from climate catastrophe to the destabilization of democratic norms and processes. And in many ways, when we start to see, you know, things fall apart, it can feel like there is no there there. You know, there is no. And that's really the point where as humans, we can go back into our most tribal survival driven selves. But I also think this is an opportunity to really actually take a different position, which is that, okay, things are being revealed and it doesn't feel good, but here we are, that there are ways to move forward as a considered and thoughtful person that wants to create a different value system in a time of increased volatility. And as things become revealed, you know, I always think of that tower card in the tarot deck, right? Things break apart, but then we're actually able to rebuild in ways where we can really see ourselves and be connected. And there's a lot, I think, within the just transition that opens us up to more ethical, sustainable, and collective modes of engagement to to repair from um, what has happened to our systems of earth and our systems of democracy. So this is a moment, I think, that's a reckoning happening across many different kinds of systems of exclusion. And caste is definitely part of this conversation to go slow enough and to build communities of healing around it is our call of the moment. And so appreciate so much having had this time to talk and dig deep with you on this. Yeah. Amen to that. And I hope I can continue to be a part of your community. Um, Are there any calls to action to support you? I mean, we definitely want to tell everyone to get this book, The Trauma of Caste, A Dalit Feminist Meditation on Survivorship, Healing, and Abolition. It's for sure a must read. Um, And it's one you want to have, you really want to own. And because you want to go back to this book, you know, there's a lot of, I'm looking at it now and and there are worksheets in it. And it's just, it's very, very rich. Um, I know that there are sections that I already want to reread. So um, it's kind of that one that you want to have at home and you want to be able to circle and highlight. Um, So we'll link that of course, in the show notes and everyone encourage everyone to pick that up. How, how else can we support you and your mission? Well, I think that one of the things right off the bat, you know, in addition to buying the book, um, buy it for a young person in your life or read it in community with your family and friends, because it is really a communal experience. And, and we have support for that. You know, North Atlantic Books has a great link to reading questions for book groups. And so really build community around the book as you purchase it. The other thing I'd really recommend is for people to follow myself on social at Dalit Diva and Equality Labs at Equality Labs on all socials, because that's a way for you to be plugged into the caste equity Dalit civil rights movement. And we have numerous calls to actions, as well as invites to workshops and trainings that we're doing. And We are really in the fight for our lives right now. And the more flanking that we have, um, the more that we're able to really bring us back into into community with more and more circles of beloved um, friends and family. So please join us there. And then also consider if you're a yoga teacher or someone in a Dharmic tradition to incorporate caste equity practices in your community or sangha. And this can include adding caste as a protected category in your list of protected categories in your non-discrimination and employment policies. And also think, consider giving um, an acknowledgement to caste harm in your yoga openings or even in a sign or a poster somewhere inside your sangha. Because just like we have normalized doing land acknowledgements, acknowledging this harm at the root of your lineage doesn't do anything except for create opening for people like me and hundreds of millions of Dalits that are still facing deep violence around this issue. So those are some small steps. And of course, 
I look forward to hearing from a more ideas that may come from your listeners, because again, to end cast, we need everyone at this table. And so I look forward to building beloved community as we free all of us together. That, you know, I'm going to ask our listeners to come to the table with that, you know, what's showing up for them and leave that call to action and that call to community. And I'm certainly, I'm very, very happy to be a part of your community. I hope to be out in California sometime next year as I'm touring my book. And I would definitely love to meet you in person. I'm following you on those Instagram handles and we will put them in the show notes as well. And I am definitely going to include that acknowledgement in all of my classes and encourage my colleagues to do so. Thank you so much, Tenmori. I'm really, really grateful for your time. And I look forward to continuing our relationship and conversation. Absolutely. And many blessings to you and your listeners. And till we next meet again, I send you so much love and care. Thank you. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.